Well, hello, Austin. And uh, hello, listeners slash viewers. Welcome to Insight Insights. This is a new podcast that we hope will try to make sense of the headlines uh, as they relate to terrorism and targeted violence. So uh, my name is Erin Grace. I direct communications and external relations for the National Counterterrorism Innovation Technology and Education Center, or INSIGHT. We are a Department of Homeland Security funded center of excellence. Uh, we are the largest terrorism research, cons research consortium in the country. And with me today is Austin Doctor. He is an assistant professor of political science and head of counterterrorism research initiatives. So mm. thank you for coming today, Austin. Yeah, thanks for having me here. Thank you for being a guinea pig. Mm -hmm. We hope our audience is forgiving today. Um, okay, so apologies up front listeners and guest Austin uh, as we pilot this brief report. Uh, our job is to create new knowledge and to make a sense of the things happening in our world. Uh, we are supposed to share it out with the public and this is just another way we're going to try to do that. And we decided what America really needs is a new podcast, so we are adding to that. Uh, let's dive in. Today's topic is drones. Austin is leading a research project examining how geospatial tech can be used to launch attacks against critical infrastructure and crowds. And just this past Sunday on January 28th, uh, you know, we saw a drone strike on a U.S. base in Jordan, killed three people, uh, three soldiers, it injured dozens more. And um, it's a developing story, but well, let's just start with the basics with the type of weapon that was used, a drone or an unmanned aerial system. What can you tell us about yeah. the weapon? Yeah, sure. Well, I'll start by saying, like, start with the, the large caveat that we're, we're still waiting for official reporting on the type of system that was used uh, to conduct this attack. But I think, um, first off, just based off of the damage and harm that the, the attack created, we can assume that this, this wasn't your commercial off-the-shelf quadcopter system that you can buy at Walmart, right, using um, a jerry-rigged system for deploying something like a, a small hand grenade, right, which is a type of system uh, and type of, of drone um, uh, attack profile that we've seen militants use in the region. Um, I think it's more likely, uh, based off of um, what we saw in the immediate aftermath of the attack, that uh, this was, was a more sophisticated system um, and one that I would qualify as, as a military grade uh, UAS. Um, likely um, a, a one-way or what people have referred to as a kamikaze style drone system rather than one that's designed to be used in the field and then actually piloted and redirected back to, um, back to a base or back to the user. Um, so we're, we're looking at a, at a relatively sophisticated um, system in this attack. Things that I'm looking for right now are evidence, I think many others are looking for, is uh, evidence of, of whether or not the components within this device point back to uh, obviously a state sponsor, right? And, and specifically here in the subtext is, is the state of Iran. This is a state that's known to um, develop and then disseminate um, relatively affordable but sophisticated high-capacity drone systems across its network of, of proxy militant forces in, in the region. So with that said, um, I don't expect you to know all the particulars uh, since we're waiting for information, but how close do you have to be to operate something like this physically? Yeah, great question. So um, if this drone system is the type that I would expect, something like a, what's called a, a 
a part of maybe the, the Shahid suite of Iranian-based um, platforms, then we'd be looking at an operational range up to 1,500 miles. Oh, wow. Um, so this is a, a, a medium to long range, uh, or a system capable of, of medium to long range operations. Um, uh, this is, as I said, not, not something where you need to be within 200 yards in your backyard in order, or even to, to have a visual um, to, to, to pilot uh, and command the, the device or platform. 1,500 miles. Um, I'm wrapping my brain around that while also thinking of, um, you know, some reporting, I think, by AP that, uh, you know, that base was not, uh, was anticipating a drone, a, a, a UAS that our military had, like you just described, sent out to come back. Um, and so they didn't shoot this one down. Yeah, that's right. And I think it, Part of that is likely due to the fact that, quote, Tower 22, the, the, the base where this conduct, uh, attack was conducted, um, is based in Jordan, right, which is not um, typically a country um, where we observe attacks uh, against American installations or troops. Um, now, just over the border in Syria and Iraq, we've seen over 160 uh, attacks by Iranian-backed um, and, and supported militias specifically against U.S. troops and assets just since October wow. in the Hamas attack. 160? Yeah, so it's been incredibly high tempo, um, mm -hmm. uh, sort of set of operations over the past couple of months that look a lot like this one, that involve missiles, that involve uh, drums. Uh, these proxies have been playing with fire, right, trying to uh, uh, use force to probably, I think, compel U.S. forces to leave, but without escalating things beyond control. Um, and in this case, it felt inevitable um, based off how often, how frequently they were issuing these attacks that eventually U.S. personnel were going to come in harm's way. Um, the question is what happens next? Is this one capturing our attention simply because people were killed? Because um, you tell me 160 and I, I can think of a few, I just didn't realize that number was so high. Yeah, I think that is part of the reason, rightfully so, that it's, um, that it's caught. Um, uh, so much of the, the news cycles attention, um, but I think it's also important to note that just over the past couple of months, dozens of persons have received critical injuries, head trauma, um, as a result of these attacks. Um, the three um, service members who died uh, over the weekend happened to be the first fatal casualties um, uh, of, of this broader drone and missile-based campaign that we're seeing in the region against U.S. forces. This is a dummy question, Austin, so forgive me, and audience, forgive me, but does this um, device, does it carry a payload that it drops, or is it in itself a bomb, Yeah, great, yeah, so um, again, the, the big disclaimer here is that we don't have official reporting on the type of system that is used, but if it is the sort of platform that I'm anticipating it to be, this Iranian-based um, uh, platform or a copy of, of, of these types of um, uh, uh, of systems, then yeah, this would be um, a, a one-way style um, platform, meaning that the, the warhead or the munition would be um, actually located on the device itself and it would um, detonate upon impact. So the entire thing is meant for single use. That is very interesting. We talked about this, Austin, um, oh, a month or so ago. When you look at how does the U.S. defend against attacks by these things, and one drone versus what, what a missile? Yeah. What is the cost differential and how? Yeah. Uh, you know, some, some drones, uh, particularly those commercial off-the-shelf systems, can be acquired for just a few hundred dollars. Um, this type of more sophisticated system, again, without official reporting but that I'm expecting, um, 
to have been involved in this attack uh, costs anywhere from twenty to fifty thousand dollars per platform. So it's not chump change, but when you consider the ratio of the costs uh, on the flip side that are needed to actually counter that threat, um, it's still in the favor uh, of these militants and by a considerable margin, meaning that every time they're shelling out twenty to fifty thousand um, dollars, the other side that's responsible for countering that attack is paying much more. Um, meaning that even an intercepted attack, successfully intercepted attack, is still in some ways a success for the militants that are issuing these. Um, and it just continues to actually exacerbate sort of the cost asymmetries um, for, um, uh, for, for U.S. personnel or its partners or local government forces that are trying to um, establish a baseline of security and safety for local populations. I mean, they certainly are very effective, aren't they, um, for being uh, mosquitoes, really, right. compared to yeah. what we have. So tell us more broadly, how are UAS is being used in war zones or conflict, thinking of Ukraine, of course. And sure. And actually, the same type of, speaking of Ukraine, this um, this type of platform, the, the Shahid model, um, uh, has been exported by Iran and seen used by Russian forces against, against Ukraine. And so we've seen this. Um, this tactic, this TTP, um, disseminated on a, on a global scale. Um, uh, and then on the flip side, we've seen Ukraine really accomplish some amazing feeds in, in the way that they've been able to scale production of very cost-affordable systems and to employ them rapidly in the field, um, again, at scale. Um, now, the Ukrainian forces use a blend uh, system. Some of them are more sophisticated, military-grade uh, platforms with longer range capabilities, but they've also found a way to incorporate commercial systems and jerry-rig those with uh, with smaller munitions to to have now tactical effects, right, against uh, in, in specific engagements, but um, to create a lot more disruption against uh, a conventional invasion force. Um, now you look at that same logic and you look at what's happening in, in the Middle East right now, militants are using them to the same effect. Um, the Islamic State, right, um, was really successful in creating, they had their own drone manufacturing plant, they had their own sure. department for drone manufacturing, they would purchase and, and retrofit uh, commercial systems uh, and were able to um, create outsized effect uh, and actually achieve what I think was referred to as quote, tactical air superiority for a time being against US forces, mm. right? Not for wow. nothing. Um, the most powerful military force in, in the world. Uh, and that's in part because they were able to innovate. They were able to find margins um, to get a foothold um, and, and introduce something new, something mm. where the existing security infrastructure counter protocols uh, weren't fully established and ready to to, to meet that threat head on. Well, Austin, you teed yourself up perfectly for what I was gonna ask next, oh, which is, uh, you know, how do we counter that? And tell, so tell us about your geospatial project, yeah. why you started looking at this well before the October 7th Hamas attack, which has triggered all these things. Sure, yeah, so my work focuses on militants, terrorists, but particularly the ways that, um, uh, that they plan their operations and, and try to get one step ahead of security, um, sort of opposing security forces. And um, one of the ways we've seen that happen over the past 10 years uh, is, is through unmanned aerial systems in particular. And so, uh, yeah, I've been conducting research on the Islamic State's drone program, on, on actually the Houthis drone program out of Yemen. Um, 
uh, for quite some time and now more recently starting to look at, okay, what are the geospatial related elements here? Recognizing that many drone systems um, use geolocated information to operate, um, but also act as producers of that information to then be sent back to users. Meaning that they can be really useful depending on the types of sensors that are located on these devices hmm. for um, intelligence gathering, for surveillance and reconnaissance, sure. supporting more effective operational planning. Um, you know, uh, again, looking at uh, the Hamas attack of October 7th and the ways, the various ways that drones were incorporated uh, into that attack for the purposes of propaganda, for the purposes of pre-attack staging, um, combined arms, so creating distractions so that other munitions and other, um, uh, other fronts uh, or elements of the assault could successfully infiltrate um, uh, Israeli territory, drones were a big part of, of the success of, of that attack in that day. And so this project is really focused on just trying to better understand the nature of that threat, where it is today, but also where it's going to be five, ten years from now, sure. so that we can support proactive responses rather than a, a reactive posture. So two questions about that. When is the, like, are you going to have a report or output from this research that we can share out? Sure. Yeah. So we'll have... Um, you know, like any project, this is a two-year period of performance. Okay. We'll be producing uh, reports over that period of time specifically related to UAS um, and the threats they pose to U.S. homeland and national security. Um, the first suite or set of uh, deliverables that will be available to the public um, will, will come out in the next couple of months. Oh, good. Um, okay. And then we'll maintain a, a relatively regular cadence of uh, deliverables after that. I think it's going to be highly relevant, Austin, and those of you tuning in, just, you know, uh, we'll let you know uh, as soon as we can have those deliverables to share. I'll probably have you back to talk about sure. them. So, um, I have a billion questions to ask about drones, but yeah. I'm going to save them to get to some other headlines that we saw today. Um, you know, I guess I want to I, I want to get to what happened in New York. So we just learned mm -hmm. last night that a pair of brothers, ages 39 and 51, were arrested with mm -hmm. a crazy cache of weapons in their queen's apartment. Mm -hmm. um, they'll be arraigned in mid-February. They could face uh, jail sentences of 25 years um, each. But let me just read off what I saw on the press release, and I want you to respond, because in addition to knowing about drones, you are doing work on uh, countering improvised explosive devices. That's right. Okay. So uh, eight. They found eight operational IEDs. Uh, these look like pop cans with wicks in the picture. Uh, one partially constructed tripwire IED, two loaded AR-15 style ghost gun assault weapons, two loaded 9mm semi-automatic ghost gun pistols, two loaded 9mm semi-automatic 3D printed ghost gun pistols, over 600 rounds of ammunition for each of the firearms, 600 for each, one 3D printer, three sets of body armor, and then numerous notebooks containing instructions on how to build these things and anarchist-related propaganda. And there's a bunch of other things I found. I'm not reading those off because I think these were the ones that just I want you to respond to about sure. what that kind of said. So what is your analysis kind of thinking about that? Yeah, sure. So first I'll say that we've, you know, maybe I'll just refer to uh, Secretary Mayorkas um, stated uh, and, and reported to Congress that um, we're currently seeing a surge in bomb-related threats. And so the fact that I think improvised explosive devices were involved in this arrest um, isn't surprising to me. It reflects that broader national level trend. Okay. Um, 
Uh, and again, the, 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 the truth is terrorists are, and again, we don't know the, the motives yet yeah. of these specific individuals, but if we're drawing this out to talk about the terrorism or violent extremism landscape, we know um, that explosives continue to offer a lot of bang for the buck, and they mm. continue to be, uh, they continue to appeal to a wide range of violent extremists. In other words, this isn't a toolkit or a, a tool that's favored only by, say, Salafi jihadists or, or only by white supremacists or anti-government, anti-authority violent extremists. It, it's useful Anybody? really to, to, to all of them or, or could prove to be useful to all of them. Um, Something that stands out to me here, and a lot of the work that we're doing here at Insight focuses on emerging threats, and particularly um, malign use of emerging technologies, right? Um, uh, how do these sort of malign actors, malevolent actors use commercial democratized tech to then get that like additional edge, right, on, on, on the security and counterterrorism workforce? Um, this profile of, of sort of cache of weapons is really telling about the nature of today's threat. First, you have soda cans with wicks and them really really relatively simple rudimentary um, uh, weapons that, that, that would create harm right um, they're weapons and, and probably device for the purpose of, of creating harm um, but it, nothing nothing to write home about with respect to the sophistication of the devices but you look at this and recognize okay some of these tools are tried and true and will continue to be used that is the persistent enduring threat but what we're also seeing is that this is paired with ghost, not just ghost guns, but 3D printed ghost right. guns, right? And I think that's really descriptive and almost a, a microcosm or example of what we're seeing today, which is terrorists continue to use some of those tried and true tools while also finding ways by way of supplement um, to innovate and to use emerging technologies um, uh, to circumvent uh, you know, monitoring surveillance by law enforcement um, to, to overcome existing opposite barriers to entry for actually conducting or planning an attack. 3D printed guns uh, check a lot of those boxes. Mm. Gosh, okay, well, some other things to keep us up at night. Um, I want to return just for a second to the Sunday strike. Um, I'm thinking, mm. I mean, I just, I guess because we're fresh off the news of the identities of these soldiers, they're mm -hmm. all from the state of Georgia. Um, and I just want to say their names because terrorism yeah. and targeted violence has real human costs. So um, the nation and the state of Georgia in particular are mourning the lives of Sergeant William Rivers, Specialist Kennedy Sanders, and Specialist Brianna Moffitt. Um, our government has pledged some kind of response. We'll see where that goes. Mm -hmm. But I want you to put us in the militant's chair. Yeah. So how is a militant reading this? They just killed three service members and injured a bunch more. Does this encourage more drone use? Does it, does it make the U.S. look more vulnerable? What do you see going forward? Yeah, so um, my expectation is, is sort of on, on both sides. Um, I think likely expecting that they have sort of poked a bear and are now waiting for a sizable military or kinetic response. Um, and that may include moving into more population-dense areas, right, to avoid being targeted. Um, uh, and, and sort of anticipating the potential of a response uh, attack by the United States um, on behalf of its, uh, of its fallen service members. Um, uh, on, on the flip side, this offers um, propaganda value or risk offering, uh, risk offering propaganda value to these militants who can now claim to have landed a blow against a force that they are blaming for broader regional 
dynamics, right? Um, and in particular, been calling attention and seeing terrorist activity further motivated by the terrorist activity of Hamas in October, right? So we're continuing to see the second and third order effects or the ripple effects um, uh, of what happened now uh, a few months ago and was continued to, to escalate more broadly in the region. Well, it's certainly a dynamic world we're living in. I mean, over the weekend we had, um, you know, ISIS claim a responsibility for an attack during mass in Istanbul. Mm. We had a Massachusetts man arrested for um, wanting to kill a bunch of Jewish people in that state. And so mm. we just are kind of on our toes right now at this time. Yeah. I'm so grateful that you came. I mean, you're a political scientist, but you know a lot about tech. I guess in closing, can you talk about the importance of interdisciplinarity on these problems? Yeah, absolutely, and maybe exactly to your point, I'm a political scientist. Uh, I look at the um, struggle in society over the distribution of power and resources, right? And, and how uh, individuals, groups, organizations sort of vie for control of those things. Uh, why am I looking at tech, right? Um, mm -hmm. And, and the, the truth is one, because tech is a useful tool to mm -hmm. achieving those outcomes, but as it relates to expertise, it's essential that um, that, that we that I join forces with folks who are way smarter uh, on on those topics than I am. I get to work with Joel Elson. I get to work with Sam Hunter um, and, and the rest of the team here at Insight to combine um, that expertise, that knowledge, to offer just a more uh, I think nuanced, well-rounded, and, and actionable um, uh, set of insights into into these types of issues. Well, thank you, Austin, so much for lending your expertise. I learned a lot. Uh, just in these few minutes together and you know and I'm not scared it doesn't scare me it, it, it makes me feel like we get smart people on the case and certainly um, a, a big uh, group here in this country working on it we had the State Department here last week thinking about these things it's uh, so the counterterrorism effort here in this country is broad and, and deep here uh, at Insight with all these researchers so thank you uh, for coming um, thank you for tuning in whoever is watching beyond my mother and uh, let, let us know what you think, what you want to hear. You can email us at insight at unomaha.edu. And that's a wrap.